The text for the sermon this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, we're going to be looking at the verses 7 through 13. Our text reads as follows, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Following the proclamation of the word, we will stand and sing as our initial response The words of Psalm 56, the stanzas 3 and 4. Sorry, stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beginning part of Revelation, there are seven letters written to seven churches. And this morning, we're looking at the letter that was written to the church at Philadelphia. Now, this letter is somewhat unique, because in this letter, the Lord Jesus does not admonish the church for anything. If you go through the seven letters, you'll find that in five of them, he specifically addresses issues that are living in that church. But to the church at Smyrna, and now here the church at Philadelphia... He doesn't say anything negative. It's a letter written to encourage this congregation. Now, the Lord Jesus is not saying that in Philadelphia everything is perfect, but he says something noteworthy here. It's the fact that the saints in Philadelphia were faithful. The Lord Jesus says that in verse 8, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. The reason this is noteworthy is because it tells us something about how the Lord Jesus evaluates when he looks at the church. He's not looking at the outward things, the number of people, the programs, 
All these may be good, but the Lord Jesus is looking primarily for those who are faithful to his word also when they have to deal with different challenges that arise. With each one of these letters, the Son of God is focusing the attention of the church on his person and his work, and then he admonishes those who have strayed from these things, but he encourages those who have kept this focus. That's the message he has. And it's a message not just for the church at Philadelphia back then. It's a message for the church of Jesus Christ also today. And so I proclaim to you the word of God this morning, doing so under the theme, the one who has the key of David encourages the faithful in Philadelphia. We'll see three things. He sets before them an open door. Secondly, he will keep them from the hour of trial. And third, he will make them a pillar. Now, when we look at all these letters, it's always important to note how exactly the Lord Jesus introduces himself. And here, he states that he is the Holy One and the True One. Now, what's he saying with these titles? Holy One is a relatively frequent title for God in the Old Testament. He identifies himself as such in Isaiah 40, verse 25. It's what Habakkuk sings in chapter 3, verse 3 of his letter or his prophecies. It's what we sang of in hymn 5 at the beginning of this service. And the true one, it means that the Lord Jesus can be taken at his word. He is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. And so the one speaking right away presents himself to the church at Philadelphia, and he's saying, I am the Son of God. I am your Savior. And that's important because it flows into what he says next, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So as the divine Son of God, seated on the throne at the Father's right hand, it's the Lord Jesus who has absolute authority. When he makes a decision, it cannot be reversed by anyone. And it means that when he opens a door, no one can shut that door. Well, he goes on to say that's exactly what he's done for the believers in Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Well, that presents us with a question. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he speaks about an open door? There's different layers to this statement. In the first place, we have to note that the Lord Jesus in Revelation had already spoken about holding a key. You find it back in Revelation 1 verse 18 where he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. And it means he's defeated death. He's provided the way of escape. Well, now he says, I have the key of David, and I've set before you believers an open door, which no one can shut. And then we have to note that the key of David is language of the Old Testament, which we read of back in Isaiah 22. In that chapter, we read of this man, Shebna. He was the keeper of the keys. He was a steward, and he was the one who would basically grant access to the king. He had a position of high prestige. But he'd taken that important position, 
And instead of using it to serve, he'd used it for his own honor. He'd used it to carve out this beautiful tomb in a grand place. And so the Lord says, I'm going to take you from this position, and I'm going to replace you. I'm going to put Eliakim in your spot. And then about Eliakim, we read there in verse 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. But if you continue to the end, you see that Eliakim was not the final keeper of the keys. In verse 25, he would also give way. He would be cut down and fall. But it's the Lord Jesus who does have the key of David. So what does that mean? It means that this open door, which the Lord Jesus puts before his people, is the door of salvation. He's seated on the throne as the great son of David, and thus he is the one, the only one, who can give access into the kingdom. Well, he has opened that door by his death and resurrection. By his blood, he took away the very thing that caused that door to be shut, namely sin. And as a result, all those who believe in him, all those who are washed in his blood, are free to enter through that door and to enjoy all the blessings of redemption he has obtained. But then there's a second meaning to this open door. And this meaning ties in with the history of Philadelphia. This was a city that was located on some major roads, including some major trade routes. And as a city this way, it functioned like an open door. It was meant to pass along the Greek language, the Greek culture. In that sense, it was often considered to be a missionary city. Well now, the one who holds that key of the house of David he set before them the open door of the gospel. And because of the constant trade and the constant people coming in, he says, I'm also giving you opportunity to share that gospel. Scripture uses this language of the open door for sharing the gospel in other places. You can think primarily of what Paul writes in Colossians 4 verse 3, where he says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. But brothers and sisters, there's something important that we have to note here. Because know what Paul says there. Who has to open the door? Pray that God will open the door. Who sets before the Philadelphian believers that door? It's Christ who has set before them that door, a door which only he can shut. And it means that when it comes to success in spreading the gospel, it's ultimately about what God does, what the Son of God does and how he uses his people. And so the believers in Philadelphia, they in fact received two things. They'd received the gospel of salvation and faith by which they clung to their Savior, and they'd received the opportunity to share and to spread the good news of salvation with others. And it sounds all wonderful, and it is. But it wasn't as though things were always easy for these believers. The Lord Jesus acknowledges that in verse 8 when he says, I know that you have 
but little power. In the eyes of the world, the church at Philadelphia was really nothing special. There was nothing significant about them. In the words little power, it's relatively ambiguous language. The Lord Jesus could be saying that I know you have but small numbers. I know you have but low economic status or no standing with the government. But in the end, for the Son of God, those things don't matter. The church may have had but little power. Yet the Lord Jesus says about them, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. He's not looking at those other things by which the world might evaluate the church. He praises them for living by faith. And there's the positive side. They've kept the word of the Lord Jesus. They'd strive to live out of thankfulness and obedience in submission to God's commandments. And there's the negative side. They have not denied his name. To deny the name of the Lord Jesus has severe consequences because when one does so, the Lord Jesus says that he will deny them before the Father. Matthew 10, verse 33. So Philadelphia, as a church, was characterized by faithfulness. That's what the Lord Jesus says about them here in this letter. But it's something we also see going forward because eventually what happened is that the Muslims moved in and they took over Philadelphia. But the Christian church was never extinguished there. It continued to exist. But then if you look at the text, you see that there was another challenge for the believers. You find it in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. It's interesting that in both letters where the Lord Jesus encourages the church, namely Philadelphia and also Smyrna, you find reference to the Jews and the synagogue of Satan. It's a reference to the fact that you have these ethnic Jews And these ethnic Jews proudly state and proudly claim that they are the people of God, no others. Already back in his ministry, the Lord Jesus refuted that claim. He says, you can't be the people of God. You can't be children of Abraham because you don't believe in me. You find this back in John 8. Well, for this reason, and along with their persecution of the Christians, these Jews who claim to belong to God... They were now, in fact, giving aid to the enemy of God. They were associated not with God, but with Satan. And there's this synagogue. It's a place where Satan dwells, not where the worship of God takes place. But then here's where things in the letter connect more to the church there. Because the Jews in Philadelphia, people of Jewish background, they had excommunicated any Christian from the synagogue, they said, you have no place here, the door is shut to you. Well, the one who has the key of David, he says, don't worry about that door. People can shut, people can open, they can do whatever they want with that one. But he says, I, I have set an open door before you and no one can close that door except me. And these so-called Jews They may seem to be on top now. They may enjoy positions of power and influence now. 
But the Lord Jesus says that's all going to be reversed going forward. You see that at the end of verse 9. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Brothers and sisters, there's something very profound taking place with these words. Because when you read through the Old Testament, one finds many prophecies that the Gentiles would bow down to the Jews. Isaiah 45, verses, verse 14, the wealth of e- it mentions there the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and more. They shall come to follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. Isaiah 40, 43, verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Well, when you look at those prophecies, the Lord is telling his people then of a time when all these nations are going to come, and they're going to bow down at your feet. We sang of that also in Psalm 86. The Lord says, when it comes to you, my people, the whole world is going to see, I love you. You are my treasured possession. And all of that Old Testament background comes through now in our text, but it's reversed. Because the nations are not bowing down to the Jews. Instead, the Jews are bowing down to the Christians. The Israel of God is no longer bound to the people of Jewish race, but it is those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the ones that God says all people are going to bow down before you, and they are going to know that I love you. It is rich comfort for the church at Philadelphia. Because in the present, they had very little power. They were insignificant in the eyes of the world. They didn't really matter. And isn't it this way for the church many times throughout history? In Belgian Confession, Article 27, we confess there, although for a while the church may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Isn't it the case even today? The church may be seen as insignificant by so many in our world. But that's only part of the picture. Because the Lord Jesus has set that open door also before us. The Lord Jesus has set before each one of his people the gospel of salvation, the redemption that he obtained for them by his death on the cross. And he's even given us that open door by which we have opportunities to spread the gospel in spite of the fact that we may lack standing in the eyes of so many. And it's that open door which leads to a glorious future. The future where all will bow down before Christ and his people, where all will acknowledge that believers are those loved by Christ, those for whom he gave his life. It's comfort for us. Because how often isn't it the case that the present can be a challenge? How often isn't it the case that the present is a time of adversity since the activities of the evil one continue to take place here in this world? And doesn't it often happen that there are doors closed to the people of God? There's business opportunities that are lost 
because we stand firm on the faith. There's opportunity for promotion that's taken away because we won't stand, we won't compromise on our principles. And it can get frustrating. It can be discouraging. But the Lord Jesus says, don't worry about those doors. I've set before you an open door and it's only me that can shut it. For the church at Philadelphia, they had kept the word of the Son of God. They had not denied his name. They had endured the persecution of Satan's synagogue. And the Lord Jesus then says, because through faith, he will keep them from the hour of trial, our second point. As a result of their patient endurance, the Lord Jesus continues in verse 10 of this letter, and he says there, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's many questions that we could ask about these words. What exactly is the hour of trial? Why does it come upon the whole world? And what does it mean to try those dwelling on the earth? Well, the hour of trial, that doesn't seem like a long time. Hour goes by fairly quickly. But the Lord Jesus here is not referring to a little, literal hour of 60 minutes. He's referring to a period of time. And what kind of trial will it be? Well, at first, the text doesn't seem to indicate. It simply seems to say that something is going to happen to the whole world for a set period of time. The problem is, we don't know of many things that impacted the whole world at that particular point in history. So what exactly does the Lord Jesus mean with this? Well, the answer is seen when we look closer at the words, those who dwell on earth. Because throughout Revelation, there's a contrast between those dwelling on earth and believers. And so the Lord Jesus is saying that there's a time coming and it's going to be used to try those who refuse to acknowledge him. It's going to be a test of faith and it's going to lead to the conclusion that these dwellers of earth are found wanting. And what is the hour of trial then? It's everything spoken of in Revelation going forward. It begins in chapter 6 with the opening of the seals, leading to judgment in the earth. In Revelation 13, you have the reign of the Antichrist for three and a half years. In Revelation 16, you have the bowls of wrath being poured out, and all of it is the hour of trial upon the world to test those who reject the Lord Jesus and to show that they do not repent. And the Lord Jesus in this letter is again using language of the Old Testament. You find it back in Daniel 12, there in verse 1, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never had been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. So again you see that contrast. And it comes out again in verse 10. 
Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So this hour of trial, the Lord Jesus is speaking about everything that's taking place before he returns. Well, if we turn to Scripture, we know what he has said about this time. You find it specifically in a passage like Matthew 24, verses 9 through 15. He has said there will be wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquake. The love of many will grow cold. There will be persecution. There will be hatred. And it goes without saying that just going by that description... It's not a pleasant time at all. But it is the time in which we live today. And when you read everything that happens, also family members betraying one another, the love of people growing cold, you can easily ask the question, how is it possible for anyone to come through that time of trial? How is it possible even for believers to stand firm in the faith? Well, the answer comes from our Savior in the text, where he says, I will keep you. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you out of the trial. He doesn't say, I'm going to spare you from all the hardship. He says, I will keep you. He will preserve his people through the fire of the trial. And as part of his preserving work, he's given his people the sure promise, both in Philadelphia and us today, I am coming soon. In the other letters, when he says he's coming soon, it's the threat of impending judgment. It's the warning to the churches then to shape up and to get back in line before the judgment comes. But for the faithful in Philadelphia, the fact that Christ is coming soon is that encouragement. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep standing firm in the faith. Hold fast to what you have. Hold on to that gospel of your salvation. Cling to your Savior who has opened that door to the eternal kingdom. And then think about what awaits at the end. It's not just everyone bowing down before Christ or before his people. But it's what the Lord Jesus says in verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The word for crown, it refers to a garland that would be put on the head of one who had won a race. Well, to someone who quits the race halfway, there would be no crown given. But to those who finish the race, to those who live by faith right to the end, They are crowned by the Son of God with glory and honor. It's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Yes, brothers and sisters, the hour of trial is here. And it's through this time the Son of God exposes those who reject Him. But it's through it all, the one who holds that key of David, He preserves His people. And He promises that because of His preserving work, He will reward them with the unfading crown of glory. And if that's not encouragement to continue standing firm in the faith, then nothing else is. And the Lord Jesus could have easily stopped there. He could have easily left the church at Philadelphia with that encouragement. But instead he goes further and he promises that he will make them a pillar, our third point. Verse 12, the Lord Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And for us who read that today, it's kind of interesting language, and we wonder, what exactly does he mean with that? Well, this promise would have meant a great deal to the believers in Philadelphia. And again, to understand that, we have to consider some things about this city. Overall, Philadelphia was an incredibly wealthy city. There was plenty of trade, plenty of commerce. There was fertile soil, so there was a lot of vineyards there. And the main god in Philadelphia was Dionysius, the god of wine, the god of unrestrained sensuality. But like all cities, Philadelphia did have a weakness. And their biggest weakness is that it was a place with many earthquakes. In the year 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that hit the city to the point where Philadelphia was nearly destroyed. And because of all these earthquakes, there were many people who felt it was very unsafe to live in the city, and so they went out of the city. They lived in the surrounding countryside. But then there's the promise of Christ. I will make him a pillar. And a pillar speaks about strength. It speaks about stability. You can also think back to what we read in Isaiah 22, verse 23, where the Lord says about Eliakim, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. But where does the Lord Jesus say that he will make the believers a pillar? He says, in the temple of my God. And it calls to mind the Old Testament. You have King Solomon who built the temple. And according to 1 Kings 7, at the front of the temple, there were two pillars. Well, now where's the temple of God in the New Testament? According to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, the temple of God is the church. And being a pillar in that temple, it speaks to us of having eternal fellowship with the God of our salvation. Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. For the believer who conquers by faith, who lives by faith also through trial... They have a place with their Savior, not just now, but they have a place with their Savior forever. The Lord Jesus says that in the letter. He shall never go out of it. For the believer, unlike the people of Philadelphia who left for safety, 
the believer will be safe in the temple of God, safe in the fellowship of God. They find true security in Christ. But then the Lord Jesus continues, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now, names, again, we're dealing with something very important in Philadelphia. We mentioned a moment ago that earthquake which destroyed the city. Well, the Roman emperor, a man named Tiberius, he tried to help out the city. And so he said, from Philadelphia, he would uh, demand no taxes, and he would require no tribute. Instead, he gave money to help them rebuild. A very generous offer. And so the city had actually taken on a new name after that, and they called themselves Neo-Caesarea, or New Caesar. Well, later on, under the emperor Vespasian, they again gave themselves another new name, Flavia, which was the family name of the emperor. So names meant a tremendous amount to the people there. And pillars also often bore names. There were those pillars of Solomon's temple, and they were named Jachin and Boaz. 1 Kings 7, verse 21. Later on in history, pillars would have names used for dedication. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to give you three new names. The name of God, the name of the city, and the name of Christ. Now that brings questions. Why these names? And what is the new name of Christ? Well, when it comes to the new name of Christ, the truth is we're not entirely sure what that means. And if you read through the commentaries on this passage, you'll find no shortage of options that are presented. There are some who say that we're going to receive a new name for the Lord Jesus, something that we don't know at all now. There's others who say that the wonder of the name of our Savior is going to become more fully known to us. But it's more important that we see this as part of the whole package. Because when we talk about the name of God and the new name of Christ, it refers to two things, namely ownership and legitimate citizenship. The, new name of, the name of God and the new name of our Savior, that shows the one to whom believers belong. If some people, when they get a new book, they put their name at that front of the book, and it shows that the book belongs to them. Well, God and His Son place their seal of ownership on those who live by faith. And by putting their new name on them, they confirm that this one belongs to me. This one belongs to the Savior who bought them with His blood. And the name of the city, the New Jerusalem... It marks one as a legitimate citizen of that city. In Psalm 87, we sang of that before the sermon, you see the effect of the open door under the blessing of Christ, where all the people from the different nations are coming in. And in verse 6, the Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. They have a place there. They're a legitimate citizen. They belong there. And it calls to mind the words that we confess in Lord's Day 21 about the church, that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Well, that's what the people of God who live by faith can look forward to. 
those three new names, being a pillar. But there's a foretaste that we receive now, a foretaste that leads us to our calling. And we see it in two ways. In number six, verses 24 to 26, you have what's called the ironic blessing, the blessing that we also hear at the end of our worship service. And then in verse 27, the Lord God explains what he means with the blessing. He says there, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. At the end of this service, we will receive the blessing of God. And we're called to make it our own by faith. But it means that at the end of this service, with the blessing, the Lord is putting his name upon you. He's marking you as one who belongs to him. He's ensuring you of his favor. He's ensuring you of his peace going forward. And that places upon each one of us a responsibility, namely to live as those who belong to him, to walk as those who bear his name, to live by faith as we anticipate the time spoken of by our Savior. And we see something similar in a second foretaste. It's what we have in the sacrament of baptism. Because there again, the triune God places his name on the forehead. And he gives us the calling to live by that name, to live by faith, to love the Lord God, to forsake the world, to crucify the old nature. And there's a reason he tells us of this. It's because that's exactly what we look forward to in glory. Yes, right now, none of us may be all that impressive in the eyes of the world. We may not be among the rich. We might not be included among the powerful. And as a church, our numbers may not be all that impressive either. But through this letter, the Lord Jesus says, continue to be faithful. Hold fast to him as the only fortress, the one who has won the battle. Live with patient endurance in spite of Satan's ongoing schemes. Because the Lord Jesus says, I've opened up that door for you by his death and his resurrection. And it's by faith we walk through the door. It's by faith we will dwell in the kingdom of God, that kingdom which is forever. Amen.